Welcome to the Cruciform Life Church podcast, featuring the weekly sermons from our Sunday gathering. Please visit us online at www.cruciformlifechurch.org for more information. Good morning, church. I am impressed by what Pastor Enteng has just painted in the frames of your heart. It is, shall I say, a Messiah-shaped passion. Why? Because it's the signpost of God's ultimate project, and that is the formation of a community of worshipers. Ultimately, we only see one project from God's end, and that is bringing Jews and Gentiles together to worship Him. So where is the church? Where is the church? I understand that today, to many, hope seems to be fading. But to some, it is more concretely emerging. Yet, there is also a tragic tendency from our end to make God in our own image. So this morning, I wanted to ask a more specific question for all of us. What kind of posture should Christ's followers have in today's world? And I would suggest it should be Messiah-shaped. It is humble, and perhaps you have some recollections on Philippians 2. It should be faith-driven. We completely trust God in His governance, in His way of governing the world for Himself and for His glory. We should have this posture and feel this inner resolve and cognitive satisfaction in Him and through Him, and perhaps grounded in the gospel. So from here, I would say that Paul's prior in Ephesians is for the formation of Christ's communities. And the result is very clear. There is only one project that is not yet accomplished. Your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. And this is a picture of everyone's recognition of the reign of God through Jesus the Messiah. So ultimately, what is disciple-making for? This is an invitation for people to put their allegiance in Jesus the Messiah for the worship of God, for the worship of the triune God. So let's focus on prayer for that matter. If every part of our lives as Christ's followers is to be renewed and saturated by the gospel, how much more should that be so of our prayer life? Our churches desire that our prayers if our churches desire that our prayers accurately reflect the standards of the scripture then brothers and sisters it is urgent that we return to the primary source notice then that before paul exhorts the readers to pray paul provides them with an example by modeling prayer for them. And that is first and foremost for Paul, prayer 
is for the praise of His glorious grace. Please join me then in reiterating our scripture this morning. Ephesians chapter 3 verses 14 to 21. For this reason I bow my knees before the Father, from whom every family in heaven and on earth is named. That cosmic dimension of praying, right? Verse 16, that according to the riches of His glory, He may grant you to be strengthened with power through His Spirit in your inner being. That's the cognitive satisfaction we have, not only in Jesus Christ, but in God's redemptive plan. Verse 17, so that the Messiah may dwell in your hearts through faith. That you, Christ's assembly, being rooted and grounded in love, may have strength to comprehend with all the saints what is the breadth, the length, the height, and depth, and to know the love of Christ that surpasses knowledge that you may be filled with all the fullness of God, a reflection of who God is. Now to Him who is able to do far more abundantly than all that we ask or think, according to the power at work within us. So God be glory in the church and in Christ Jesus throughout all generations forever and ever. Amen. The word of the Lord. Paul, first of all, blesses and praises God. We call this in chapter 1 verse 4 down to the following verses as the Barak of Israel. It's a, it's a Jewish posture of prayer. It is humble. It is God-centered. It is faith-driven. It is completely dependent upon the one God of Israel. Now, not only for the Jews, but including the Gentiles, where we find the grounding of our passion and intentional commitment for the Great Commission. It is God's project of bringing in the Gentiles into the community of the Jews so that what we have painted for us is a picture of worshipers. That's the purpose of the Great Commission. It's not adding numbers to our assemblies, but it's inviting people to put their allegiance to Jesus the Messiah for the worship of the triune God. So from chapter 1 to chapter 3, Paul is actually praising and blessing God first and foremost. And then now we come in chapter 3, a clear picture of Paul's prayer for the Christ assembly. He offers two bursts of intercession for them in chapters 1, but now also in chapter 3, while describing the spiritual wealth Jesus the Messiah has conferred on all of us, His followers, on believers, and the bounty that grace has bestowed amounting to all spiritual blessings leads Paul to these prayers. In chapter 3, 14 to 21. First and foremost, for the glory of God. And second, for the building up of the body of Christ. It's a picture of for community formation in Jesus the Messiah. For the worship of the triune God. 
In fact, Paul is anxious for his readers to realize in daily practice the style of life such incomparable riches make possible. And this is highlighted in the long paragraphs in Greek. This is actually long paragraphs in Greek 1, 15 to 23, and now chapter 3, 14 to 21. While there are many good things we can pray for, brothers and sisters, there is one prayer that is always appropriate and always urgent and needful. And that is we should be faithful to pray that we would be strong in the Spirit, content in God, and fully trusting in Him. And as we read the New Testament, and especially the letters of Paul, these are the kinds of prayers we see most often. Prayers for spiritual strength, for a greater awareness of the power and presence of God. And one of the greatest examples of what it looks like to pray for spiritual strength is in Ephesians 3, verses 14 to 21. Today's scripture focus. The prayer before us then has two rich and lengthy petitions. Paul roots them in two grounds and ends the prayer with a word of praise. And therefore, our sermon this morning, brothers and sisters, is an urgent invitation to learn afresh, shall I say, to relearn by unlearning. Let's reverse it. I think prayer has been so familiar to us that Don Carson, one of our mentors, once wrote, Pray until you pray. It is one thing to desire to pray, but it is another thing to find yourself bowing the knee. In order to learn or relearn how to pray, we should be willing to unlearn. We should be willing to admit that we have not learned yet to trust God for His glory. So we have to focus on these questions. What do we need to pray for? What arguments do we need to use? Is it man-centered or messiah-shaped? How do we maintain or what themes on which to focus when we pray? Is it our purpose or God's purposes? Is it our project or God's project? How then these prayers fit into a larger Christian vision about the world and for the church? And how do we maintain the centrality of God's exaltation in our prayer life? Let me unpack this reflection in three ways. So let's begin with the position of Paul's prayer. Or shall we say, the intentionality of Paul's prayer. Verses 14 and 15. Again, the scripture reads, For this reason, on account of these things, I bow my knees before the Father. As I think of a community being formed, as worshippers of the triune God, this is the very reason I am convinced to bow the knees before the Father, from whom every family in heaven and on earth is named. 
brothers and sisters, Paul's prayer for the Christ assembly in Ephesus is not casual. It's never casual. Rather, it is intentional and passionate. It is for the glory of God and the formation of the church. He doesn't offer a casual prayer because he bows before God and makes his request known to God. Lord, I concur with your project in forming a community of Jews and Gentiles together for worship. This is my heart's desire. I want to reiterate this before you in humility. Not my desire. But if I am given a space, this is my heart's desire for the sake of this community of worshipers. Indeed, Paul's petitions are in line with God's redemptive purposes. And that is my observation in most of our churches today. That they tend to do their own business, but seems to be detached from the business of God. Because they are not grounded in the gospel, including their prayers. They wanted to turn the world upside down, not allowing God to turn the world upside down in the light of His cosmic design. We can identify the direction of Paul's argument with the expression, for this reason. It actually harks back to chapter 3, verse 1. For this reason. And then to chapters 1, verse 15 and following. For this reason. And then to chapter 2, verse 11. Therefore, on account of this, I kneel before the Father. Paul's purpose after blessing God, after putting God at the center of the life of the church, his desire next is for the continued formation of the body of Christ for worship. So what do we see here, brothers and sisters? The apostle praises God for his sovereign grace in bringing lost Jews and lost Gentiles together into one humanity, into one new community. For what purpose? And guess what comes next, brothers and sisters? Worship. It's a picture of worshipers. That's the project of God for redemption. And so Pastor John Piper reminded us in his reflection from the book of Psalms, the Jewish book of worship, let the nations be glad. For John Piper, the goal of mission, and for that matter, the Great Commission, is what? Worship. God accomplished this through the redemptive work of His Son on the cross. And so in addressing Gentile converts, Paul concludes in chapter 2, verses 19 to 22. And it reads, So now you Gentiles are no longer strangers and foreigners. You are citizens along with all of God's holy people. You are members of God's family. Together, we are His house, beautiful, built on the foundation of the apostles and the prophets. And the cornerstone is Jesus, the Messiah Himself. We are carefully joined together in Him, becoming a holy temple for the Lord. Jewish categories, isn't it? Through Him, you Gentiles, a big chunk in the redemptive drama, 
the inclusion of the nations, the pagans, the ethnicities of the world. Through him, you Gentiles are also being made part of this dwelling, God's tabernacling with his people, where God lives by his spirit. The coming back of the Shekinah glory, God dwelling with his people while they are worshiping the triune God. Then Paul adds in 3, 1 and 14, for this reason, I kneel before the Father. Paul's prayer, therefore, was in line with God's declared purposes for humanity. They become Paul's very reason for advancing these particular petitions to the Father. Perhaps you, you recall the disciples' prayer taught by the Lord. The essential values of the gospel, holiness, gratitude, commitment, allegiance, and so on, must shape our praying as, the shape, as they shape Paul's. Hence, a Messiah-shaped plea for divine empowerment. Brothers and sisters, Paul's prayer is also a humble plea before the Sovereign Father. Paul knows who he is praying to. He is praying to the sovereign God who is over all things, but who is also a loving father who cares for his children. God governs not only the lives of his people, but the whole universe. During this election time, a lot of confusion in our churches. Our people kept on asking me, Pastor, Nasaan tayo? And I grounded my response with this phrase, Jesus is Lord, Caesar is not. Go, figure. Jesus is Lord, Caesar is not. As if we govern Philippines, as if any politician who will take over can transform the Philippines. No way. It is God. So by way of recognizing the work of God through this instrumental people, they can contribute, but God wins and God governs. So it should be a recognition of the reign of God and the church should lead or take the lead. Amen po ba dyan? The church should take the lead. We should not be divided by politics. Pastor Enting posted, we are Christ followers first, not Filipinos. Or not the other way around. Let's highlight what is important then for God's people. Paul's petitions are addressed to the Heavenly Father. There is already a quick recognition, a clear picture of recognition that the Father leads his children. That God, whom we approach in prayer, is not simply the transcendent other. He is the heavenly father, our father, Abba Father, Ama Namin. Abangan niyo po yung libro namin. Hopefully, I, uh, it will come out before the end of the year. We tried to contextualize this prayer, Ama Namin. And I wrote on, Mauwi sa amin ang pagkahari mo. That's the original version in Tagalog based on the Doctrina Christiana, the first book that was published in the Philippines. 
for religious purposes. Mauwi sa amin ang pagkahari mo. The picture is reunion. The picture is a recognition of God who is already reigning. Mauwi sa amin ang pagkahari mo. Praise God. Pero nakakalimutan ngayon. Politics first before theology. Sad to say, I hope, let's continue to protect the flock of God. Mark Dever said, let's close the front door and leave the, the back door open. Go figure. Let's protect the flock of God. The God whom we approach is not only powerful, but He is related to us. He is our Father. Did not Jesus teach His disciples to pray, Our Father? Clearly, brothers and sisters, the nature and character of God become for Paul a fundamental ground for intentional intercessory prayer. Prayerlessness is often an index to our ignorance of God. Indeed, the more we reflect on the kind of God who is there, the kind of God who has disclosed Himself in Scripture and supremely in Jesus the Messiah, the kind of God who hears and answers prayer, the more we shall be encouraged and motivated to pray. It is a God-driven allegiance. Real and vital knowledge of God not only teaches us to pray, but gives us powerful incentive to pray. Perhaps it is appropriate to offer some reflective questions here. How intentional and how passionate are our prayers for others? Do we take time to stop and purposefully speak to God in prayer? Or are the majority of our prayers hurried and half-hearted? When we pray, do we take time to consider the one to whom we pray? One way to motivate our prayer or our prayer life is think about who God is and the privilege that we have of going to Him with our requests. Don't worry, Pastor Anting, this is temporary. In heaven, no more tears. And add to that, no more sweat. It's all about worship. Thank you anyway. The intentionality of Paul's prayer leads us to see the essence of his prayer. Verses 16 to 19. Shall we say, the petitions of Paul's prayer. That's a rhetoric. The petitions of Paul's prayer. Again, verses 16 to 19 read, that according to the riches of his glory, he may grant you to be strengthened with power through his spirit in your inner being so that Christ may dwell in your hearts. I like this. Through faith, the Shekinah glory, the spirit dwelling in me, in us, is a new exodus. It's a new beginning. It's a new life in Christ. That you, being rooted and grounded in love, may have strength to comprehend with all the saints. What is the breadth, the length, and height, and depth? And to know the love of Christ that surpasses knowledge, that you may be filled 
with all the fullness of God. Praise be to God. So brothers and sisters, at heart, Paul's first petition is a prayer for power through the Spirit in our inner being. It's cognitive resolution. It's cognitive stance. You trust in God. You don't understand everything in the world, but you trust in God and you rest in Him. We all know that Paul regularly prays for power. In chapter 1 of this epistle, 1.18 to 19, Paul has asked God for power for his readers. And it goes like this. Having the eyes of your hearts enlightened, that you may know what is the hope to which he has called you. What are the riches of his glorious inheritance in the saints? And what is the immeasurable greatness of his power? Toward us who believe according to the working of his great might. That he worked in Christ. When he raised him from the dead. What a picture of vindication. And seated him at the right hand in the heavenly places. What a picture of governance. Power in order to be strengthened. Here Paul prays for power more directly. I pray that he may strengthen you. Christ's assembly, that he will form you continually with strength. Verse 16, the power for which Paul prays is mediated through God's Spirit. The paraclete, our final consolation. No less important, the sphere in which the power operates is what Paul calls the inner being. I tried to look at the dictionary and even Webster could not explain this picture of Cognitive rest in the gospel of the Lord. A prayer for power in the inner being. Exactly by what Paul means by that. Does he recognize that the most significant need of the Christ assembly in Ephesus, and for that matter, in our time, in our churches, was not physical, but spiritual? And so he asked God to make them spiritually strong. Yes, brothers and sisters, this is a spiritual strength, but it affects our physical being. It starts and begins with this cognitive dependence and rest in this keeping God. And so we gain the clearest picture of what Paul means when we consider what he wrote in 2 Corinthians 4, 16-18. Which reads, So we do not lose heart. Though our outer self is wasting away, it's decaying, we will all die. Our inner self is being renewed day by day. For this light momentary affliction is preparing for us an eternal weight of glory beyond all comparison. As we look not to the things that are seen, tangible, Flitting, but to the things that are unseen. For the things that are seen are transient, but the things that are unseen are eternal. Paul's body, the outer man, is wasting away under the onslaught of years and persecution. But the inner being, the inner man, 
is what is left when the outer man has wasted completely away. Yet, inwardly, Paul insists, in the inner man, we Christians are being renewed day by day. Praise be to God. Of course, our ultimate hope is for the resurrection body. But until we receive that gift, it is our inner being that is being strengthened by God's power through His Spirit. Ganda, no? And so in a culture, a way of contextualizing, looking at what's going on around, in a culture where so many people are desperate for good health, but not demonstrably hungry for the transformation of the inner being, Christians are in urgent need of following Paul's example and praying for displays of God's power in the inner being. In some, put together, Paul's primary concern is to pray for a display of God's mighty power in the domain of our being that controls our character and prepares us for eternity. But what purpose does it have for now? One cannot help but notice the Trinitarian character of the prayer. Paul asked the Father, verse 14, that we might be strengthened through the Spirit, verse 16, so that Christ, Jesus the Messiah, verse 17, might dwell in our hearts through faith. Again, it harks back to chapter 1, verse 4 and following. It's the baraka of God. It's the blessing of God. It's a recognition, complete recognition of God in worship. A Trinitarian portrayal of the grounding of Paul's prayer. It is not just Messiah-shaped, but it is Trinitarian, uh, Trinity-oriented, a triune God orientation. Therefore, Paul's hope is that Christ will truly take up his residence in the hearts of Christ's followers as they truly trust him so as to make their hearts his home and reflects his own character. But with what measure of resources is the prayer to be answered? It is with what God has already secured for us on account of Christ out of his glorious riches. Can you, can you measure that? Out of his glorious riches. This is Messiah-shaped narrative. So, the supply of God's glorious riches in Jesus is as lavish as the benefits secured by the Messiah. And to doubt the provision God has made for us on the cross is to doubt the provision God secured in His Son at Calvary. But there is more. At the heart of the second petition is Paul's concern for the Christ assembly to have a greater comprehension of the limitless dimensions of God's love in Jesus the Messiah, verse 19, verse 17b to 19. Paul therefore wants the Ephesians to have a sense of the vastness and the enormity of God's love. God's love surpasses knowledge, but he grants us the ability to comprehend with our hearts that which is beyond the understanding of our minds. So the prayer that we might better grasp his love 
for us cannot be merely an intellectual exercise. Paul is not asking that believers might become more able to articulate the greatness of God's love in Jesus the Messiah or to grasp with the intellect alone how significant God's love is in His plan of redemption. Rather, He is asking God that they might have the power to understand the dimensions of that love in their experience. But seriously, how do we appreciate love? How do we measure it? For Paul, the response is clear. The love of Christ is not merely something to be privately experienced. And so I hate this Western way of salvation. Your personal Lord and Savior. Detached from God's perspective of a communal salvation in Christ. Meaning, God's desire is to form a community of Jews and Gentiles together to worship Him. The very intention of God for redeeming humanity is to form a community. So my salvation is only clear and understood when it is seen with clarity as linked to the community God desires to form. Salvation ultimately. Look at the language of the New Testament. It is always communal, never individual. You are elect. You are justified. You are called. You are saved. God's purpose, God's project is to form a community of worshipers. Not your individual purpose, but put together a communal purpose. Motivated by worship. So let's be very careful in terms of how we invite people to put their allegiance in Christ. Let's present the community in God's plan. That's why you are invited to be part and you belong. So God's ultimate purpose is not your salvation, but the formation of community of worshipers. That love was a wonderfully rich redemptive plan God himself had graciously disclosed across cultures and centuries and then brought to fulfillment in the death Resurrection and exaltation of the Son. Paul is not fostering, brothers and sisters, some experience of love outside the constraints of the gospel. What he presupposes is that apart from the power of God, Christ's followers will have too little appreciation for the love of Christ. Why is it so hard to, to get commitments from professing believers? Because they have not seen the value of this community in God's plan. I am saved, now I go to heaven. So what? You're missing the point. Paul wants us to have the power to grasp God's love in Christ to the end that we might be mature, that we might be formed as a community of worshipers, to know this love that surpasses knowledge, that you may be filled to the measure of all the fullness of God. And while none of us will be able to experience this completely on this side of eternity, Paul prays that the Christ assembly in Ephesus will be filled with the person, character, and essence of God 
recall a similar expression in Ephesians 4, 11 to 13 for a while, which reads, Ephesians 4, 11 to 13. Now these are the gifts Christ gave to the church, the apostles, the prophets, the evangelists, and the pastors and the teachers. Their responsibility is to equip God's people to do His work and build up the church, the body of Christ. Friends, a formation of community. This will continue until we all come to such unity in our faith and knowledge of God's Son that we will be mature in the Lord, measuring up to the full and complete standard of Christ. The Word of the Lord. God and Christ are the standard. Paul here assumes that we cannot be as spiritually mature as we ought to be unless we receive power from God to enable us to grasp the limitless dimensions of the love of Christ. And rightly so. Some may think they are peculiarly mature Christians because of their theology, education, years of experience, traditions. But Paul knows better. He is well aware we cannot be as mature as we ought to be until we know His love that surpasses knowledge. Until you are willing to unlearn, you will never learn Christ's love. That is why he prays as he does. He wants Christ's followers to grow in their understanding of Christ's love so that they will become mature. It's a continuing project, the formation of a community filled to the measure of all the fullness of God. Praise be to God. So that Christians become God-saturated. Do you remember Karl Barth? Sabi niya, newspaper sa kaliwa, Bible sa kabila. But his intention is for people to be saturated by the book. To be saturated by the author of the book. To be saturated by the standard of God. And in this, for that matter, Christ and the gospel. It takes nothing less than the power of God to enable us to have this grasp and spiritual stance. Usually, people want to experience power so that they can be in control. Paul, in contrast, prays for power so that they will be controlled by God Himself. And so our deep and pathetic self-centeredness is precisely why it takes the power of God to transform us. If we are to know the love of Christ that surpasses knowledge and grow to the maturity the Scriptures hold out before us. Brothers and sisters, what do you see the church would become with such love-shaped maturity. Truly, to experience that love invests all of life with new meaning and purpose. The relationship of the saints takes on new depth. Our fellowship becomes precious, not the artificially shaking of hands in a service. Forgiving others becomes almost natural because we ourselves have been forgiven immeasurably. At the cross, by God. Imagine the scenario, brothers and sisters. Our thoughts, our speech, 
our actions, our reactions, our relationships, our goals, our values, and add more to that. All are transformed if only we live in the self-conscious enjoyment of Christ's love. In short, we are growing up spiritually. As you pray for others, what dominates your prayers? How much time do you spend asking God to do a work in the hearts of those you love? The greatest need we have is to know God fully and to be complete in Him. But how often do we pray toward that purpose? Brothers and sisters, this leads us to our last point, the expectations of Paul's prayer in verses 20 and 21. Here is the powerful hope of Paul's prayer. He knows that God, through His power, can accomplish more than we can fathom. While we may doubt that those around us will ever grow in spiritual maturity, we must remember that God to whom we pray, He can accomplish far beyond what we can imagine. Here's verses 20 and 21 again. Now all glory to God, who is able through His mighty power at work within us to accomplish infinitely more than we might ask or think. Glory to Him in the church and in Jesus the Messiah through all generations forever and ever. Amen. This is God's saturated purpose and prayer. Paul has been asking God for some blessings of extraordinary value and are immeasurably great. But now, in his closing word of praise, back to chapter 1, to the praise of his glorious grace, in his closing word of praise, he puts these petitions in perspective by stressing two Motifs or themes. First, the God whom he petitions is able to do immeasurably more than all we ask or imagine. Do we need more explanation for that? His confidence is nothing more than the entailment of belief that God is omnipotent. To a God like this, there cannot be degrees of difficulty. Yet God can do more, not only because He is powerful, but also because He is generous. And to think of God in any other way is to demean Him. Yet to think of Him as powerful and generous is tantamount to a call to pray and trust Him. We simply cannot ask for good things beyond God's power to offer them. We cannot even imagine good things beyond God's power to bestow them. Indeed, Paul's concluding word of praise becomes an immensely powerful incentive to pray. Second, Paul's overarching desire is not the glory of man, but the glory of God. While this passage is a prayer for the Ephesians, Paul is not seeking the glory of the church, the glory of the Ephesians. Throughout the prayer, Paul points back to God, and in the end, God is the one who should receive 
all of the glory. It is tragic to think then that it is possible to ask for good things for wrong reasons. Isn't it? The root sin is the kind of self-centeredness that wants to usurp God's place and as a consequence, and as a consequence, dethrones Him. Look at what's going on after the election. People are trying to dethrone God by imposing upon their desire rather than submitting their will upon His or every allowance He provides. Yes, we will always wrestle with the problem of evil, corruption, and so on. Yes, we will always wrestle with the odyssey. If there is such a good God, why does He allow evil to prosper? But this is the very context that Paul is inviting us, and this is urgent. Hey, church, let's put God at the center of every talk about governance, especially governing the world. Jesus is Lord. Caesar is not. Has God become so central then to all our thoughts and pursuits and thus to our prayer life that we cannot easily imagine asking for anything without consciously longing that the answer bring glory to God? How tragic then if our prayers for good things leave us still thinking of ourselves first, still thinking of God's will primarily in terms of its immediate effect on ourselves, still longing for blessings simply so that we will be blessed. This is man-centered. Do we bring our petitions before God with the ultimate goal that God might be glorified? These questions reflect Paul's vision in his concluding word of praise. Brothers and sisters, what? Concluding word of praise. So he started praising God, a Jewish way a gesture of praising the one God of Israel. Now, a picture of Jews and Gentiles coming in. So the vision is now the same. The formation of the church. But he's concluding for the praise of his glory. For the praise of his glory. Paul prays that there might be glory to God, both in the Christ assembly, as it progressively obeys God, and pleases Him and makes Him the center of its existence or her existence. And also in Jesus the Messiah, presumably as He is lifted up by the Christ assembly in faith and practice. Let's put things in perspective as we conclude. So brothers and sisters, the first petition is a plea for power. But power to be holy. Power to think act, and talk in ways utterly pleasing to Jesus the Messiah. Power to strengthen moral resolve. Power to walk in transparent gratitude to God. Power to be humble. Power to be discerning. Power to be obedient and trusting. Power to grow in conformity to Jesus the Messiah. Not power to control. The second is likewise for power that enables believers to grasp the limitless dimensions of Christ's love. Nothing on our part. This God-centered and Messiah-shaped. Moreover, we must recognize, secondly, 
that what we see as limitations are not limitations to God. We serve a God who can transform any heart. There is hope. We serve a God who can do things that we cannot even imagine possible. As we are faithful to call on Him and God is faithful to answer our prayers, we must be careful to give Him the glory. He is the one who deserves our allegiance. He deserves our praise. Finally, here then is how we shall reform our prayer life. As we seek for divine enablement, later we will install your elders. We need this enablement from God. And as we seek for divine enablement, not only for the elders, but for the church, we shall learn to pray with Paul, not only in his petitions, but in his words of praise, and above all, in his ultimate goal, which is for the glory of our Heavenly Father. Brothers and sisters, only then that we can think of Paul's proximate goal, and that is that we might receive what we ask for. Allow me to end by reading Ephesians 1, verse 12. And it reads, So that we who were the first to hope in Christ might be to the praise of His glory. May we truly be driven by our understanding of Christ's love for the worship of God. Join me in prayer. What an opportunity, dear Father, for us to experience this worship together. But right now, you have reminded us of the importance of having the right perspective in life. Much more so, for that matter, the life of the church. Where is the church? We can probably ask, what is God doing in the world? But that can be followed up by asking, where is the church? What posture has been displayed? What gesture has been painted? How do we see our project in the light of your overall plan of forming a community of worshipers? This morning, dear Father, we ask that you would grant us wisdom to comprehend what it means to see this with clarity, that we get the answer of our prayers in the light of what you intend to show us, and that is your glory. Panginoon, salamat po. Sana sa inyo kami bibilib, hindi sa aming kakayanan. In Jesus' name. Amen. Thanks for listening to today's episode of the Cruciform Life Church podcast. Check out more gospel-centered messages at www.cruciformlifechurch.org or subscribe to this podcast at Spotify.